Hello, and welcome to the Homeland Podcast. Step out to find out it's wet and warm, wet and warm. Tra-la-la, 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 tra-la-la. Hey, everyone. Before I begin the podcast today, I want to mention that we are up on iTunes. Now, if you have a moment, I would appreciate it if you could give us a rating or review on the iTunes store so that other people who are interested in this ongoing conversation about design, public space, and homelessness can find us more easily. Now about today's guest. There are a few voices out there who would question the nearly panacea-like effects of adding more community green space. In popular media and academia, New research seems to be emerging daily, documenting the significant health, developmental, biological, and economic boom that investing in high-quality open space affords cities and marquee projects like the Highline Brooklyn Bridge Park, the Olympic Sculpture Park, and Millennium Park seem to reinforce that to be a 21st city and attract 21st century talent, you need to invest in open space. Yet what if this is only part of the story? What if, to tweak Richard Florida's recent framing, there was a new urban green space crisis that offered a contradictory narrative of displacement that harms some of the most vulnerable people in our communities? Are those concerns real? And if so, what do we do about them? These are just some of the difficult questions that Sarah Dooling confronts us with. And her critiques and where she sees the greatest opportunity for advancement challenge the owners, builders, designers, engineers, and politicians who shape the built environment. Ultimately, Sarah invites us to define a new way of building, calling for a more synthetic practice that includes politics and economics to make stronger, more resilient communities. I hope you enjoy our conversation. You were someone who, uh, I always appreciated your healthy skepticism about um, some of the loftier language that us in the design profession brought to the table in trying to mm-hmm. sell our projects, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you were always interested in kind of this nexus of, of place and poverty and the built environment and urban economics. And I wanted to just uh, provide the listeners kind of with your background and conversation about that and how that has influenced your understanding of place and maybe the idea of home? Oh, that's a great question. So I do have an, a weird background in the sense that I tell people and they are just astounded, but it makes sense to me. So I was, uh, I went to two years out of high school to a great book school, St. John's College. And so I read all the white male classics for two years. And then I said, this isn't enough on the ground uh, knowing about the world. So I left and then I went and got a, um, degree in wildlife ecology at the University of Maine. I spent 12 years running around the country, really documenting human impacts on um, endangered bird reproductive success and habitat quality. And I was sitting in North Dakota after surveying um, piping plover breeding pairs around an alkaline lake and uh, reflecting on a failed conversation I had had with a, um, a, a cattle rancher who was shooting state endangered hawks. And I had no way of of uh, speaking of, I could listen to him, but I had nothing to offer him. 
because I had been trained that people in a natural science ecology sense were mostly agents of destruction, and I could not move the conversation forward in any, in any meaningful way. And so I realized that I needed to uh, work on that. And I went and um, completed a master's of social work. And social work, similar to ecology, is a systems-based practical professional field. Um, and there's the clinical trajectory, which I was not interested. I was really interested in the community-based planning trajectory, which includes advocacy work. So I um, did some case management work with pregnant and parenting teenagers, and I realized that um, not only are uh, northern harrier hawks in North Dakota vulnerable to people's uh, actions and threats in their lives, but that these very young parents are also vulnerable to insufficient transportation planning because they couldn't drive, and the bus system was not set up to deliver them to their state-mandated parenting classes. So they were always at risk of losing their babies for what I thought was, you know, a poorly planned, illogical, very punitive approach to um, working with these young parents. Uh, so I realized that um, there are some intersections uh, between ecology and social work, but social work was really not interested in bringing in uh, a, a an environmental perspective to understanding a person in their environment. And I'm using that very intentionally because that's how social work groups talk. They have the person in the environment model, but environment was really limited to a case management office or a um, clinical therapeutic context. So I came to the University of Washington, which is where you and I met, um, and I did uh, an interdisciplinary PhD in urban design and planning. And then part of that experience included a National Science Foundation-sponsored uh, program focused on urban ecology. And the intent that NSF had was to promote interdisciplinary work across the science, across the natural and social sciences, in order to really address real-world problems um, that... Uh, we approach them sort of outside the conventional disciplinary silos of city and nature or um, uh, social work and um, natural science ecology. So we were mandated to do an interdisciplinary project, publish it, and then complete our own disciplinary work. So my disciplinary work then uh, drew from some of the parks research that couple of us in this NSF program did. We did historical analysis of Seattle's history of Seattle's park space acquisition and what were some of the economic and cultural motivations for these acquisitions and justifications for their purchases. And then I wanted to kind of come back to issues of vulnerability and poverty uh, in relationship to a lush environmental landscape that Seattle is often characterized as. And um, I spent a lot of time with homeless adults in Seattle in many different venues, if you will, including um, some of the quote-unquote jungles in the city. And um, back then, so this was back in 2006 or seven. back then the mayor was still, the, uh, the Seattle Police Department at that point in time had started kind of a below-the-radar sweeping of homeless camps. And uh, 
kind of using similar language that's used today by city of Seattle politicians um, that homeless camps were a threat to public health. And one of the things I did observe was that in sweeping out some of these jungles, uh, the city would then come in and say, look, this space right now is set aside for ecological reasons. And um, nobody can access this site. And back in 2006 and 2007, I really thought about this as a funny kind of, uh, that like an environmental ethic, if you will, around urban nature preservation was being uh, used um, uh, to kind of replace and enforce a kind of a punitive regulatory approach to the most economically uh, vulnerable group of people in the city that were at that point in time homeless folks. So for me, this whole idea of what I called ecological gentrification was an intentional provocation that look, how we manage green spaces is informed by how we understand who belongs and who doesn't. And that includes, you know, uh, Himalayan blackberries don't belong. Homeless folks don't belong. And so the, the um, ecological piece in that phrase, ecological gentrification, was about how discourses or ideas of urban nature are used in very moral and punitive ways. In addition and alongside good intentions, perhaps, to really um, preserve uh, certain kinds of uh, flora and fauna in the urban context. And I use the gentrification um, uh, word to really emphasize how economics organizes so many relationships in the urban context not in terms of not only in terms of consumption, you know, of Starbucks lattes or what have you, but also in terms of how we how planners and designers um, uh, what we consider economically feasible and, and important to address, and what oftentimes either through default or intention uh, we consider we apply this logic of disposability almost as an economic idea that homeless folks, um, we don't have to necessarily, and I'm speaking, you know, representing a sort of a common way of talking about urban homelessness as a, as a problem that uh, homelessness uh, is a moral, it, it reflects a moral failure among the people who are homeless. So that there's this individualistic, paternalistic focus that makes homelessness a moral problem as opposed to uh, perhaps an economic and more structural problem where all of the reasons where, why people become homeless, uh, including lack of a living wage, uh, lack of universal health care, um, shortage of um, what, are, what are called SRO housing units, um, all of these structural issues sort of mask or get masked by uh, the idea that these people, when we encounter them on the street, they can have physical and mental uh, co-occurring disabilities. They look different. They act differently. So they break some of the rules about how people behave in public space. They smell funny. Um, and so they kind of disrupt our notion of what public space 
the, what the container of public space can hold uh, in a predictable, reliable way. Um, but as Jeremy Waldron uh, points out, he's a legal scholar, he said these are the very people, homeless individuals, and increasingly children, are living their daily lives, their private lives, out in public. So it's this inversion, and it's very, it's kind of an uncanny experience. And so there are many different cognitive and behavioral and even symbolic uh, disruptions happening in public space. I was just in Occidental Park, and that's a great place to see this in action. Um, so for me, uh, homelessness now is coming up against um, other, other projects that are really other municipal and private sector design projects that are interested in improving environmental conditions through green infrastructure projects. So we really want to extend, for example, the city I'm in, in Austin, we want to extend the urban canopy cover. Um, and we want to, at least in the context of Austin and here as well, use biosoils to capture, treat, and hold on to water a little bit longer to reduce flood risk and other kinds of hazards. So all of this, so again, I think transitioning from ecological gentrification to really thinking about when we put in green infrastructure projects, they have economic impacts. And I think the design profession has uh, not developed a tradition. It doesn't come out of a tradition that really pays attention to the immediate as well as long-term economic impacts of these projects, mostly because design firms, a project is oftentimes just a one-off. You come in, you come out, there's no no funding for monitoring, and um, so you're sort of left with uh, kind of an in-and-out relationship with the client and then the creation of a bioswale or, or um, something to that effect. But all of this environmental improvement is in many ways about enhancing biological diversity, which is wonderful and it's great. Um, it is also in the context in growing cities like Seattle and Austin, in the context of neighborhoods that are up and coming, as you say, or in the process of experiencing profound development pressures and gentrification pressures. Um, uh, these green infrastructure projects have the real potential to result in biological diversity and social homogenization. And so I think this is one of the really big challenges right now facing urban ecology thinkers and doers around how can we dampen the gentrifying and perhaps unintended to a certain extent by the design practitioners economic impacts on neighborhoods. And so increasingly um, in my business, I've been helping write uh, uh, draft um, municipal resolutions that have built into them triggers for um, these gentrifying pressures. So for example, in the city of Austin, Councilmember Kitchen just put forward a green infrastructure master plan resolution um, that uh, Environment Texas and myself and many other people worked on. And one of the things that unfortunately did not make it into the final resolution for all kinds of reasons was um, uh, kind of an expanded notion of, um, of the 
indicators of change associated with green infrastructure. And in Austin, it's usually a biosoil of some kind or some other kind of alternative um, uh, retention, detention pond uh, design. And so those expanded in indicators can include, you know, uh, changing uh, percentages of people living at a certain level of income on an annual basis or comparing this over time. Uh, and so that just, this confrontation between um, ecological diversity and social diversity, I think really has its, the confrontation has its roots in how we've set up our governments. They're very siloed. So we've got, you know, um, housing authorities. And here in Seattle, you have Seattle Public Utilities. And so the city itself, from a regulatory perspective, is fragmented. Likewise, in design, teaching, and practice, there is this rhetoric and emphasis on synthesis and how can we use um, all the systems on site to create a holistic um, program, if you will. Uh, and that's tricky because uh, designers, once again, aren't trained to think about the long-term economic impacts of their projects. And that's partially driven by um, being a client-based uh, practice. And it's also driven by, in many ways, um, uh, kind of a training that, that almost says the economics are beyond our purview. And so when I think about the power of design to affect social change, I really think about how can designers begin to take more responsibility for integrating and operationalizing ideas of social justice, economic stability into projects. And I have encountered firms that are now getting winning project bids um, where social justice is a core component of what they do. The challenge is these very practitioners have come to me and said, we don't know how to think about social justice in the context of an urban park. How do we know that we are addressing justice, social justice in this design? And so it really comes back to this fascinating uh, conundrum where design is not only about reorganizing the spatial relationships. So for example, I think of homelessness as ultimately a political problem and that as a society and as municipalities, we have to prioritize where our funding goes. And so I think the city of Seattle, they're just, I think they're dedicating once again, uh, about a million dollars to once again, sweep the camps. So that's a political choice. And it's using rhetoric um, coming out of the mayor's office that equates occupation of uh, urban space by homeless folks as an environmental problem, as opposed to occupation of these spaces by homeless folks um, as, a, uh, as a problem that touches on many different aspects of urban systems, but that ultimately comes down to how can we get these folks quickly into, how can we stabilize them? And stabilization can happen in a variety of different ways. So in other words, I am not convinced that we can design our way out of homelessness. I, I Design in this context includes a suite of tools, whether it's 
designing ADUs um, as a particular kind of infill development that accessory dwelling units. yes accessory dwelling units that uh, can be maintained at uh, below market rate for very low income uh, folks. So as a political problem, then I think the strategies for designers become much more expansive. And just as an example from Austin, where I live now, Mobile Loaves and Fishes is a local nonprofit that has been there for at least 25 years. And they have Alan Graham as the founder. And I've spoken on panels with him before, and I'm always very moved by his description of how of what characterizes homelessness as a problem. And he always characterizes it as a breakdown in community relationships. And for him, homelessness, addressing, alleviating, reducing homelessness is about rebuilding relationships. So for him, it's a very spiritual practice that is informed by the economic realities of Austin as a growing city with an incredibly strong, not in my backyard mentality um, that the local neighborhood planning groups often exhibit. So the shelters, similar to Seattle, the shelters in Austin are located downtown. There was, and downtown is surrounded by a variety of uh, neighborhoods that vary along density. There was no way, and Alan knew this, starting about 10 years ago, that transitional housing would be accepted in downtown, and nor would it be accepted by the surrounding urban neighborhoods. The NIMBYism is very palpable and strong. Again, that sort of that moralistic, punitive, exclusionary attitude um, that characterizes kind of the failure of participatory planning as we think of it now. So Alan, in his very strategic way, he kind of, he said, look, I'm going to go to the edge of the city where not very many people out here and the neighbors have huge lots and he um, raised a lot of money and he bought I forget how many acres maybe about I'm not going to say I'm not sure but he has through private donations and some external funding perhaps state I'm not sure built 250 tiny homes mm. for, and housing formerly homeless people all in one location? Or? All in one wow. location, almost like a compound, but that's not the language they use. Uh, community first is a village. So evoking, again, the sense of community in his language. And it was such a strategic move on his part because he recognized he didn't want to spend all this time fighting the economic and political and cultural resistance uh, to including um, poor people in these urban neighborhoods. So he went out. Evaluate that for me, because it, it, I, I, the mm-hmm. comment that you had about around community resonates a lot with a lot of the things that I've been thinking about recently. Um, and both Austin and Seattle are growing cities. They they both have strong strains of Indianism uh, in in the structure of, of the government. Um, and it seems to me like one of the things that's been going on is as wonderful as it is to kind of create that bonding social capital within the community of people who have been experiencing homelessness or are unhoused. Um, the real gap is that bridging social capital to the other neighborhoods. Um, and so it sounds like, you know, the, the leapfrogging uh, that was done in Austin 
solves one of those issues and it, and it, and it makes a greater cohesive unit um, and it, it leaves unaddressed maybe that, that bigger issue, that thornier, knottier thing of how do we begin to see people who are experiencing homelessness as part of, of, of us, as part of the us and not of them? This is a really, this is the persistent question around homelessness, I think. So a couple of things. One, I want to really emphasize that the homeless population is really diverse as the housed population is, right? So, um, so for example, here in Seattle, 1811 Eastlake, uh, the first the first wet house in Seattle. Um, and what is a wet house? So wet house, uh, so a tip, a, a typical, so conventional housing for many homeless folks requires that you be sober, not using drugs, and you're sort of under control behaviorally and psychologically. Uh, a wet house comes out of a very different philosophy that says housing will stabilize you. Um, so we welcome you, whether you're drunk or you're high or you're acting a little weird or a lot weird. And so what Bill Hobson, he was the director of the downtown DESC, uh, the largest shelter in downtown Seattle. Um, and then he conceived of this wet house idea because he realized housing does stabilize folks. So they took the 75 most expensive to the city, uh, chronic inebriates. So longest term, people living on the street, alcoholics, revolving in and out of emergency rooms and, and jails and court systems. And said, we're just, do you want this housing? And I think they offered it to 77 or 78, 75 said yes. There's a mixture of men and women tilted more towards men. Um, and what they observed over the course of the first year, oh, and no um, uh, sobriety programming was enforced. And over the, the course of the first year that they noticed uh, kind of a reduction in alcohol consumption among the residents. And that was like within the first three months. And then by the end of that first year, a significant enrollment of people in some kind of Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous program. So this housing first idea really embraces the notion that uh, housing is a stabilizing influence in the lives of everyone. And so let's make it easy to get into. So low barrier housing and wet house is just one kind of low barrier housing. Um, and it's been proven very effective and it saves cities millions of dollars. So this is kind of an economic argument for how, that tries to demonstrate how homelessness costs municipalities and taxpayers money. And uh, there's a uh, savings, if you will, associated with um, building low cost, low income and transitional housing for these, um, for the most expensive and most chronic of homeless, uh, of homeless uh, individuals. So those are often called sort of the chronic homeless. They've been on the streets the longest. And, um, and some of the work I did here in Seattle, those most expensive folks um, can be the most uh, challenging to rehouse. They're used to living outside. Uh, and, I don't, and this isn't a romanticization of their life on the street because on average their life expectancies compared to housed populations is about 10 to 12 years less. So this is really rough living. Um, so 
I remember listening to Native American men who were homeless, who'd been on the streets 10 to 12 years. And uh, one man uh, got into an SRO unit and he said, Sarah, I can't bring my, my people in here. There are all these regulations internal to these units. So he couldn't have his friends. Um, he couldn't uh, drink in his unit. So this is sort of the opposite of the uh, 1811 Eastlake project. And it's much more common. And the oven was set, could only uh, be on for 30 minutes at a time. So this punitive regulatory approach extends from the public space oftentimes into these SROs, often serving up uh, the idea that we are, as social workers, keeping these people safe, which kind of is problematic in the way that they've structured these uh, interventions. So going back to Austin, the Community First Village, you're right, it's creating a sense of community uh, within the village what Alan is very good at doing, though, to get back to your question, is reaching out, because he's trained as a pastor, reaching out to the neighbors. And so, for example, the Community First Village has a movie theater. They do movie nights, and they invite, they have a Facebook page, and they invite everyone um, from, the, from within the city. Um, they have a farm. They're actively farming, so they're growing some of their own produce. Uh, however, it's also problematic in the sense that they're way out here on the fringe of the city, um, and it's kind of a spatial remove, and it's a symbolic remove of homelessness as an urban, in-my-backyard problem. And so these people that Alan is housing um, uh, tend to be sort of the, those who are easier to house. And you're right, these, the more chronic, uh, expensive inebriates still occupy downtown Austin, similar to downtown Seattle. And so the challenge of how can we transform a sense of, how can we transform the ideas that these homeless folks are responsible for their situation, that they need to be punished for that, um, that they are morally uh, inferior in some way? How do we transform all of those discussions and values into homelessness is actually a collective, it's a collective communitarian, in a sense, challenge. That's really, really hard. I think it points to, in my experience, both in Seattle and Austin, it points to really local charismatic leadership that takes up the torch. So in Seattle, you have Timothy Harris at Real Change. Um, there was Bill Block. He was part of the uh, federal effort to end homelessness, and that the language that they used was a 10-year plan to end homelessness. Um, and the results of that, and that happened in cities around the country, big and small, and uh, town uh, people, municipal uh, towns, agreed to write these plans because continued HUD funding was dependent on municipalities and towns writing these plans. So if you didn't write a plan, you didn't get money for shelters. Uh, so you didn't get access to both state and federal money uh, to um, for social service work um, addressing uh, homelessness. Anyway, so this whole idea of how do you change the conversation and value system around 
people we think of as disposable and other and ugly and annoying and dangerous. That's that's a long-term project that I think for me comes back to comes back to framing um, framing design really as expanding the scope of practice and recognizing these social sort of wicked problems. And by wicked, I mean really complex problems that are related to all kinds of other kinds of systems, sort of expanding the, the notion of design practice to actually include working with, um, affordable housing people at the city and including working with, um, setting up think tanks, frankly, um, that do long-term monitoring of not only how do green infrastructure projects create uh, the diversity of economic impacts those projects have. That's kind of a descriptive strategy, sort of monitoring in kind of a passive sense, but also design practitioners beginning to work with social justice advocates and going back to some of the roots, the reformist roots of design and planning, which is really about going back to the work of Jacob Rees in New York in the 1890s, and really trying to understand how can, uh, at that point in time, how poverty, uh, how these tenement buildings where poor people lived were so poorly designed that it exacerbated existing inequities in health, but also in um, where people lived. So I think if des- basically what I'm calling for is design as a design practice as much more advocacy-oriented. Um, and this is really difficult because design firms are, the work is kind of regulated, determined by market forces, if you will. So there are some firms that use their for-profit work to set up a nonprofit arm, sort of a foundation, or they have an endowment. Um, and then there are other firms that are really driven by their spiritual and faith-based commitments. And I'm thinking of Oberlin Partners in San Antonio. And the owner of that firm has won awards for designing social service campuses in San Antonio uh, that are, this is kind of an interesting aside, that, that are part of the existing value system we have around how do we care and treat for urban homeless people. So we put them over here, you know, kind of keep them out of sight and contained and highly regulated. But at the same time, he's filling this, Overland Partners is filling uh, almost necessary services that oftentimes get dropped out because designers aren't, they don't have clients uh, that are interested in doing these kinds of projects, right? So I think... The, trend, the transformation of values is a long-term project. Clearly, I don't have an easy answer, but I think it is rooted in practice. Hmm. I really do. I think it's rooted in making visible how we can do things differently. So, for example, one thing I'm trying to do in Austin um, is to work with a, a conservancy group, the Waller Creek Conservancy Group, and they are a group um, that is managing... Uh, sort of the largest urban redevelopment of a creek in Austin. So there's a seven-mile-long creek called Waller Creek. They are 
responsible for the last three miles of that creek. And this is this creek has been treated as a ditch, and the, it's full of um, all the standing water in that creek right now is from leaky infrastructure. So it has very poor water quality, but yet it's still used as a, you know, I still see wood ducks there and uh, uh, wading birds and red-eyed, red-eared sliders, which is a kind of turtle, dragonflies, damselflies. So it's full of life, biotic life. And it's also one of the places where homeless folks feel safe. People aren't going down into this below-grade, um, still concretized, uh, linear uh, experience because it's kind of far from sort of the gaze of the public. So in public meetings, um, oh, and Mike, I should say, Von Valkenberg won uh, the contract to do all of the redesign of the creeks. Very interesting designs. And they talk about a hybrid ecology. I also will say in public meetings with Michael Von Valkenberg and um, Walla Creek Conservancy staff and the executive director, Peter Mullen, co-founder of the Friends of the High Line. So he's coming from the High Line, which he says is very simple compared to this creek project in Austin. Um, the one thing that has always struck me is how homelessness is, a, is critical to the site as it is now. And it is consistently black-boxed um, and talked about in terms of we're not experts in homelessness. This ha we have no way to productively engage uh, with this issue as designers. So I actually met with Peter Mullen about a month ago. And um, he and his board are very interested in this issue. They lack the staff and they lack the expertise to, to constructively engage in what they consider to be the problem. So my counter to that position and to Peter is you we don't have to be experts in this. That's not that's not the place from which to start as designers. Um, that instead I think the place is to be is to be the synthesizer and the convener. And there's an opportunity for the Walla Creek Conservancy uh, in conjunction with um, MBBA and WDWG, which is the local landscape architecture firm uh, that's involved in the, in the redesign. Um, there's an incredible opportunity to, to be the convener of a citywide discussion on urban homelessness in its complexity. And so this is very uncomfortable for designers because many all the designers I know are not trained to think along the lines of uh, social, uh, uh, sort of homelessness as a regulatory issue or homelessness as a cultural challenge about what it means to belong and what does home look like now for many people. Um, and so it is uncomfortable to step outside conventional models of practice, conventional models of fundraising, conventional models of what do we point to as a precedent? There is no precedent. And I think that for including, there's no series of really clear precedents for including social justice challenges in ecological design projects. I, I think that that's spot on. I, I also think that there's this tendency within 
and if you're talking predominantly about landscape architecture and sort of the design of outdoor public spaces, there's also a tendency to fall back on our history of, you're talking about Joseph Rees, but it's also Frederick Law Olmsted who came out of sanitation work and very much from that public health aspect of things. And American public spaces always had this mythology, I don't know how real or not it is, about a democratic public space. This is a place for everyone. This is a place to kind of lift up the masses. Mm -hmm. um, and that just the simple act of making public space is an, an, an unquestionable good. Right. And I think there, there's a simplicity and an elegance to that that is pretty seductive. Yes. Um, but you're saying that that's not always the case. <laughs> Right. So there are two, that's a really interesting point, Bryce. So there are two ways to interpret what you said. One is the history is, um, the history of regulation in the design tradition has been about improvement, right? And regula and I'm using regulation in this sense as program and as, uh, um, sort of a, a spatial organization approach. Okay. And yes, that public space is often assumed to be, to use geography language, unmediated. It's assumed to be where everyone can come together. The other interpretation of what you're saying is a much more radical and subversive, subversive interpretation. So if we take seriously that the idea of public space is for everyone, then let's do that, right? And let's think about the reality that even in Genesis, the garden was regulated. Uh, and that parks have always been regulated. Public space has always been regulated. And so the the seductive piece that public space is this unmediated, rosy place where, you know, in the Olmstedian tradition, uh, the poor can learn from the well-off, that there's this kind of social learning happening and mixing. Fine. I think that's a little bit of a fantasy, and the reality is much more complicated and when I think about design as becoming much more advocacy focused, I think it also includes really taking seriously the notion that the public includes many different constituents and the most difficult, difficult to house maybe the, for, I would like to see, and I want my own consulting firm to sort of promote this and work with design firms that are interested in, in working with this most vulnerable population that is dominating, in a sense, certain public spaces in cities. So it's kind of an opportunity for design firms to really expand the scope of practice um, that, on the one hand, is derivative of the history of design, but is also kind of saying, look, we, we are not interested in replicating uh, we're, we are interested in embracing a much more radically, empirically informed idea of public, that it includes really super poor people that have co-occurring mental health and physical problems. So when I think of the future of design and design training, what I would love to see is remove all the departments in the academies. This is very provocative, right? So it becomes a problem-based education and training in studio. And that we have social workers, economics people, uh, plan 
art historians, um, uh, psychologists, um, uh, all coming together around, um, I can just imagine one studio being, you know, uh, design home for these different kinds of people. Um, and so this, the, the reorganization of how we train and inculcate uh, practitioners, I think is really important. Um, and I think it gets back to uh, kind of the creative uh, piece and work of design is really rooted in um, I don't want to say cherry picking, but it's rooted in trying to take things from different disciplines and different ways of knowing about the world to come up with an innovative approach. And I think that creativity uh, can really be tapped into and also must be aligned with a more advocacy-oriented approach to affecting change. Yeah, and I think that that, that model of practice, the, the other thing that probably people run up against and chafe against is that the same public sector that you're advocating to yeah. is, in many cases, your client. Yes, right. So this or is a big partner. challenge. Yeah. Right, right. And so, um, absolutely. So that's why I think this is also a logistics issue. Like, how do you structure the firm? So that you can generate, so you still have a lot of hopefully lucrative uh, client-driven work, and some percentage goes into pro bono work, right? Some percentage of the um, revenue generated by your for-profit client uh, projects. I think that's that to me is kind of a clear first uh, strategy to, to empower some design firms to do this other kind of work that is not profitable in an economic sense, unless you're Overland and you get a contract from, from a municipality. Um, and I'm not actually sure if Rich, if, if some of that was pro bono on his part, it may have been. So I think there is something about the power of demonstration projects uh, um, and the community first village in Austin, Alan is treating it kind of in that way. They are, they are always welcoming of people to come and visit the place and to come into their tiny homes. Uh, so I think I think this is an incredibly important moment for design right now to really think much more broadly about what kind of future do we all want to create. How many? I mean. Uh, I want to see ecological diversity. I want to see people have the right to stay in the homes that they already have. I want to see people, for example, Native American homeless men, um, I want to see them feel like they belong someplace in the urban fabric. And so there is this, I think, move towards questioning these, and it's an insidious, it's kind of a tricky thing I'm going to, describe here, but this move of trying to think about standards of housing in a much more nuanced way. So these, I'll always remember this Native American man, he said, Sarah, uh, what I, because I, one of my questions to everyone I listened to who was homeless um, during my research was, you know, if you had to say something to city council, what would you say? Top three things. 
And this man, who's about 56, he'd been on the streets 10, 12 years, he said, Sarah, I want there to be a space where I can sleep outside when I want so that I can uh, sort of look up at the stars and have my male and female friends around me and, um, you know, and drink outside. The irony is that most of us house people drink and we drink in public. And when people drink, uh, sorry, we drink in private. And when people do their private drinking in public, it becomes a moral discomfort. At any rate, um, so the idea that someone, that a Native American cosmological worldview that values uh, being immediate, so fully immersed in nature as a way of creating a home is, is not, it has no traction with housing providers and social service uh, providers who are involved in managing shelters and getting people rapidly housed. So once again, homeless populations are incredibly diverse. And so when we think about transforming values um, that now see homeless people as a problem to, to thinking about what are the many ways in which people are at home in the world? And how can we help people be at home? Um, maybe this goes back to George Lakoff's work on, he's a uh, political social scientist. He thinks about framing discussions. So for example, instead of talking about taxation, we talk about investments. Um, instead of talking about um, uh, homeless folks, we could talk about people in transition. Um, so I think there may be a role for humanities-oriented people and linguists uh, to come in and really help start to reframe the language or rethink the language that we use to talk about poverty, to talk about uh, homeless people. And so you, you said something maybe before we started recording about the unhoused as opposed to homeless. So there is a power in how we name a person, a place, a problem. Um, or the quote-unquote jungle. Or the quote-unquote jungle, right? Uh, exactly. Um, I will say that my experience in the jungle was one I will never forget. It was very fascinating that a lot of the tents and the, um, the structures that folks had built were under the Himalayan blackberries. And so it was this odd invasive species hiding the unwanted, sort of a double layer of I'm not sure what I would call it, um, not belonging, but clearly belonging, that they had created that space for themselves. So at any rate, I think, does, I think this is a really important time right now for uh, designers to really expand the scope of what they think is of um, good work. And I think uh, so many designers I know are inclined to think about social justice, but in the context of client-driven work, it's difficult to operationalize it because they haven't been trained uh, to do that. Um, and I also think it's a little uncomfortable for designers to think about collaborating with a social worker, collaborating with a uh, affordable housing advocate. So how is that design? It's kind of designing the scope of the project. And it may, my, my vision for the future of design is that it addresses both um, policy reform as part of moving plants and soil around. 
I mean, it seems like dealing with social science issues are, it comes with much the same open system questions that you have in having an ecologist on your team. Yes, um, exactly. These are these these are questions and indeterminacies and uh, ambiguities that that people are trained to deal with. It's just in a different suite of issues, um, and probably those issues are are the ones that people don't have the tools to talk about to deal with. Um, so maybe let, let's talk about a transition that you've recently made. Uh, yes. You've left academia. Yes. Uh, after. A while, <laughs> uh, and are now doing something else, and mm-hmm. kind of talk about why you made that transition and what you're hoping to achieve. Well, what I really want to achieve, I, so I kind of feel sort of time is on my heels that there's some urgency right now to um, to really thinking through multiple futures. So I kind of feel as if urban societies, very broadly, and actually the planet uh, to scale way up. We're kind of at a really important pivot point. Um, some people refer to this pivot point as the Anthropocene, which is a kind of a catch-all term that for some people is intended to emphasize how human actions have radically altered planetary processes. So speaking as a climate person, this includes atmospheric flows, it includes hotter, in some places wetter, in some places drier climates. Um, uh, it includes, for social science people, a widening gap and kind of a, a, a more skewed distribution of income. For political science people, it's related to kind of the pulling back of investments made by government and kind of an emphasis on public-private partnerships uh, as a way of funding municipal operations even, in, which is happening alongside the privatization of all kinds of things, including water. Uh, access to water and, and um, selling of water. So I feel that there's this urgency um, to do things differently in how in, in thought and in practice. And there's a term in the literature called praxis that says that is basically defined as um, an, a going back and forth between the ideas about what we think we need to do and the evaluation of then what we actually do in practice. So it's this iterative dance between theory and practice. And part one of the reasons I left the academy, uh, and I don't want to dwell on this too much, was that I got super duper sick. And so now I realize that in and of my own self, I'm in this in-between space that's not healthy and it's not completely diseased. And so... As I transition into this new normal, it's living with really high levels of uncertainty. And I just thought about how does that impact what I want to do in the world? And I realized that I want to really do something different with my time. And one of the things I really want to do differently is one, help designers kind of expand the scope of their practice, help designers think about how does how can social equity become a core central component to design practice? Uh, and that's why I reached out to Peter Mullen at the Waller Conservancy. I also realized that there that policy development, um, I really wanted to spend a lot more time doing that. 
Uh, and so I've been contacted by a suite of uh, environmental nonprofits and um, been working towards pushing the city of Austin to do things differently, to think about green infrastructure, not only in terms of stormwater, which is a conventional way to think about green infrastructure, um, but also in terms of urban forest canopy cover, but also in terms of the right to stay in, in a house in a neighborhood that is gentrifying. That green infrastructure is really one component uh, to a whole series of, um, of uh, urban systems, and that a part of my emphasis on trying to build in um, social triggers of development pressure into a, that resolution um, for a green infrastructure master plan was that I think there needs to be more synthetic policies. And that, uh, that takes a long time. That's a long haul. That's a really a long-term project um, that I felt I really wanted to put my energy into. And I also think that the academies right now and, I'll, and I can only really speak to public uh, research institutions, are struggling uh, to stay afloat um, with sort of the budget cuts that even the University of Washington here in Seattle has struggled with over the past 10 years. And that the, the beyond disciplinary synthesis, uh, I see really happening more and more outside the academy. And I wanted to be part of that energized, energizing group of people. And it is, um, it's been an interesting transition because I've had to write, learn how to write very differently, <laughs> which has been a really, really good thing to do, right? So a lot of my early work, especially around ecological gentrification, drew a lot of inspiration from an Italian political theorist. However, that has no traction whatsoever. City Hall doesn't they keep, keep up on their Italian political theory. Not that I know of, right? And so when I maybe maybe Machiavelli, but that's maybe <laughs> right. But they don't say it. Yes. So I think there is, and this is another thing that I really come to embrace: um, the power of simple, clear, direct language to incite action. Um, I think is just really important. Um, and so for me, transitioning out of the academy has forced me to become very clear about what do I want to achieve. And I think for me, it's, uh, it's about, it's about uh, transforming systems of practice and regulation and policy development as a way of getting at that transformation of societal values. And I think it really is increasingly rooted from my perspective, as an urban ecology person and social worker, it's rooted in practice, um, and that ideas can inform practice, then a practice can be evaluated, uh, and then reinform ideas about, you know, these bigger ideas about uh, what the city is and, you know, what is a public good, things like that. Um, but I think it is really now the, the challenges for many cities, um, not just how can we meaningfully uh, uh, engage in homelessness um, as a political, cultural, and design issue, uh, but also how can we increase um, ecological diversity without aggravating social problems? 
without replicating existing social inequities. And that I think, you know, if I was queen, if I could have the, if if I could, if I had a clear idea of what my firm does, it over time, it would be almost a think tank kind of unit, uh, where design folks, economics people, social work people, affordable housing people, as well as soil ecologists, community ecologists, ornithologists, come in and really think through um, the different ways, the different futures for a given site. Uh, so that's a pie-in-the-sky vision of how I see practice for the future. And it's, it's tough to, it's really hard to pull that kind of collection of um, practitioners together. It's hard to pull that off because a lot of it is, at least in the research world, driven by funding. And those funding categories is oftentimes driven by these larger societal values of what counts as an urban issue, what counts as a design issue. Yeah, I mean, it does seem like um, as people have become more aware of ecology, as people have become more aware of public health, that layering of values and that layering of funding coming from clients is... In the, in the best projects that are out there, that's what's happening. Yes. And so this is kind of a, I see that as a, a logical next step of, mm-hmm. of these, these issues. Mm-hmm. I, I guess maybe, maybe to close, um, to start winding down our conversation, mm-hmm. one thing that I think people are struggling with is, and maybe this is particularly in suburban communities where they were retreating from urban issues. Right. <laughs> and now urban issues are showing up at their door. Um, I got these issues of poverty and of vulnerability and of homelessness, are, are they going to get better anytime soon? Or is this an issue that's going to only become more and more pronounced and, and more and more acute yeah. in the public sphere? That's a big question. So when I landed in Seattle, a friend of mine, a mutual friend of ours, picked, us, picked me up, uh, ran into him, Ken Yoga. So he's a landscape architect, teaches at University of Washington. He and I were talking, he said, Sarah, the homeless problem here has gotten worse over the past four or five years. Um, so that's his perspective. And I think for Ken, or I think for many people, the severity of the problem is tied to its visibility. And by visibility, I mean, you know, people in the streets um, that we can walk by. Um, in Austin, so there's an annual counting of homeless folks called a point in time count and they count people that are in the in the shelter system i believe they count people also in transitional housing and then they count people on the street and it's not as if you go up to somebody and say are you homeless i'm going to count you it's kind of a a visual assessment do you look homeless all right i'll count you uh, and in austin our street population i'm sorry the sheltered population has dropped the street population has increased and families are increased. Similar story in Seattle. Okay. So is it going to get worse? (laughs) Um, When I think about the new federal government and I think about all the funding uh, that's being eliminated for environmental problems um, and the rhetoric around uh, some of the social issues, uh, including poverty, I'm not convinced that federal funding will be in place over the next five, uh, three to five years, I'm just—I just don't know. Um, Does federal funding need to be there to for it to get better? So this is an interesting question. Um, 
there's a new development uh, going up in Boston. And the story answers your question. And it has two components to it. And I think the development is called the Beverly. One part of the Beverly is full market value housing. The other part of the Beverly uh, project is 100% low-income housing. All these, and I don't, I forget how many units, 100 plus, okay? Um, and the financing for this project was very complicated, especially for this low-income development part. And it was a stitching together of uh, state and local housing trust money, um, as well as some federal money from HUD. So I actually do think HUD money is really important. It's critical. Um, I think, I think, uh, I, you know, I don't have a crystal ball. <laughs> and I'm just thinking I, back to the beginning of our conversation and, and your assertion that homelessness is primarily a political, political issue. issue. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you listed off five or six things that were kind of underlying political issues. Mm -hmm. um, you know, income inequality, mm -hmm. uh, health care, mm -hmm. and some of these things that are, are surrounding the political conversation going on right now. Mm -hmm. um, and, and if success is driven out of, out of a, a federal level, oh, I don't see those issues getting solved within the next couple of years. Right. Um, but it, it does seem to be there's a rise in problem solving at the local level. Right. And so I, that's kind of the tension that I'm trying yes. to get at. So I don't think success will come from... So that's interesting. I, I didn't mean to imply that federal money... Uh, that success can only happen with the inclusion of federal money. So as so, I think there's a, the activity. The most important activity is at the local level, and I think um, that activity is certainly supported by federal funds as well as state funds and private money. Um, so I was at a panel event in Austin a couple of weeks ago. And the director of a collection of businesses that that operate downtown, you have one similar to here, the downtown summer model in Austin. He really said money is not the issue, and I think I would agree with him. And he talked about so the city of Austin just went through uh, writing a report on structural racism, and as a, and it include a lot of local leaders, if you will, in different sectors, including the finance sector, um, and. Uh, one of the one of the outcomes of that gathering was that now bank presidents are meeting voluntarily to think about how can we work with low income uh, home buyers differently. What kinds of different kinds of mortgages can we make available to them? Another outcome has been uh, local businesses saying um, we will pay for a case manager at these different nonprofits serving homeless folks. So I only raise these issues because they represent these unexpected contributions that came out of something that came out of a political process. Um, do I see the politics surrounding uh, homelessness kind of resolving around a more aggressive treatment or approach uh, to solving or ending homelessness? No, I don't see that. I see my future uh, around the politics of homelessness is that it's going to get really complicated once we start seeing domestic climate refugees. So that's what I worry about. I see the community first village in Austin becoming somewhat of a model for the rest of the country. In other words, let's put a, a community of homeless folks out on the fringe. Um, 
I don't have a clear vision of the future for how the chronic inebriates, male and female, um, will be supported or not going ahead in the future. I think about Los Angeles. What are, what are they up to now in Skid Row? 70,000 homeless folks, something unbelievable. Uh, I think it really, at the local level, comes down to charismatic leadership and kind of the cultural traditions of different places in the country. So in Texas, it's really different culturally. It's very, very individualistic in a sense. And that, that's a very, that's a broad generalization because Austin and San Antonio are very different. Um, so I'm not sure what the future for dealing with homelessness really includes. That's why I feel the sense of urgency to expand design practice because the movement of the regrading and the um, rerouting of water and putting in plants and amending soil is deeply environmental work. And I think it's when poverty becomes an environmental problem, that is when I think designers and planners and social workers and economics people will feel comfortable coming together. But right now, poverty is not considered environment, really, by designers, by municipalities, in a way that fits into the current structures of uh, design firms and city government. Thank you for listening. This podcast is part of the Homeland Project. We invite you to learn more about the project at homelandlab.com. Our work would not be possible without the support of MIGSVR and the Landscape Architecture Foundation's Innovation and Leadership Fellowship. To learn more about the tremendous work of LAF, please visit their website at lafoundation.org. Finally, we want to thank our friends at Yves for the use of their music. You can learn more about the band and find out about their debut album at thesoundofyves.com.